Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Like I mentioned, we are hopping right into the book of Philippians again today. This is our, fir- our fourth week of our Philippians series. Just to remind you where we've been so far, week one, we talked about this idea of grace and peace as Paul used in his introduction to the people in Philippi. And then Pastor Casey, the next week, uh, preached a message called Bound Together. And he talked about the things that Paul is referring to that binds or unifies him and the people of this church. And then obviously takes that to what should bond us together uh, as people of the church that are seeking to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, um, come into this world. And then last week we talked about um, advancement through adversity the most fun topic ever, that things will be hard, but God is still good. He still loves you, and he will still move his mission forward, even through you, in the midst of hard times. My prayer is that as you've reflected on that and been in life group discussions over the previous week, that your heart was actually encouraged, that your circumstances don't limit how God can use you and work through you, that uh, it, oftentimes he actually uses circumstances that we might not sign up for on our own to amplify his work in our lives and around us. So that is where we left last week. And this week we're going to be picking up in chapter 1 of Philippians. And we're going to pick up in verse 18b. What that means is just the second half of verse 18. So please don't look for a b in there. That will probably lead you to the footnotes and something completely unrelated. Um, But we're going to be picking up the second half of verse 18 through verse 26 today. And the title of this message may be confusing at first, but that's why I get the next 30 or so minutes to explain it to you. The title is Live Christ. Live Christ. Now, as I was reading this this scripture and preparing for this message... um, I don't know if this, if this is something unique about me, but I really love like war and battle movies and sports movies and all of that stuff. And every, like at least every good battle or war movie and every at least good sports movie has those moments where there's this epic motivational speech, right? And you likely that's the thing you remember um, from these is this epic battle scene or motivational speech before a big game where they, you're reminded of this perspective of the moment that you're currently engaged in. In it, the, these speeches often illustrate how you need to make the most of right now, right? It's all about right now. But ultimately, in this moment, our perseverance and how we press in also has some sort of eternal or everlasting purpose. Like your engagement, like it means everything for right now, but it also means everything for what is to come. Like there's always that element in these these speeches, For instance, Braveheart, I was contemplating showing clips, and I was like, I don't know if that's really appropriate, but I would like it. Um, You know, Braveheart, they're like, man, look at all of these people we're about to fight against. For what? I don't want to die. And William Wallace comes up, right? And he's like, 
This, yeah, sure, you might live, but will you really live? Like, this is about your freedom, and what is the point in living if you're not free? And we could do a whole sermon about, like, how that applies to the gospel, but I'll spare you that today. But there's this, what are we fighting for right now? But also, what does this mean for our people, our children, our country? Like, there's a more everlasting or eternal purpose to his, his call to engage in that moment. Gladiator, the very opening scene. He's giving this talk to, to his warriors as they're about to engage in a battle. And he says, what we do today will echo in eternity. And you're just like, ooh, I got the chills. Like, this is good, right? Like, there's those kinds of things in the battle movies. And then you got any given Sunday, and I can't quote verbatim. <laughs> any given Sunday, uh, you got Al Pacino, right? He's giving this talk to these guys like, football, it's a game of inches, and we're going to take every blanking inch that we can take today, right? He's very angry and he's very animated. And we're going to get every inch we can, every play you can. And he's just, it's about, like, in football, this is important. But for us, like, in what we are doing moving forward and how we identify as a team and what we are accomplishing, like, everyone matters. And then there's the, game, the movie We Are Marshall. Great movie if you haven't seen it. And he pulls them all up to this site where the, the players, where there's these six players from their team in the plane crash that were unable to be identified because of the horrific nature of this plane wreck. And he says, here is where those six unidentified teammates of yours rest. And he's talking about, for us, like, yeah, we have this, this adversary, this opponent that we are facing. But for us, this is about much more than a football game. This is about, like, our team. It's not just about can we beat this team we're playing. This is about what we have went through. This is about the story of our program. This is about the, the narrative that is attached to our identity as the thundering herd, as is their mascot. This is about honoring those in our program whose lives were lost. And it's not like the, the military movie where, like, loss is a sacrifice. Or, no, like, loss quite unnecessarily. And it... It really hindered their program. And he's saying, draw from the pain that we have that our opponents do not. Like your opponent may be bigger, faster, stronger, supposed to whoop you out there on the field, but they don't have the kind of fuel we have because of our story, our program, what we are here for. We have a larger purpose in honoring our team, the past and present, that fuels us. Now, that's not exactly Matthew McConaughey's speech. That's how I received it. But these kind of things are no, like, they're not foreign to us. These ideas of these motivational speeches and accounting for the importance of a moment, yet what it contributes to in the long run. And as I read through Paul's letters today, or his letter today, like, and maybe it's just because, you know, I need to watch a good, like, you know, exciting movie or something, but I, I read it and I can't help but get this type of energy from what he is saying, what he's communicating today. And I share that with you ahead of time because I think if you just breeze through this like we can tend to do as we read scripture, it won't stick out in that way to you necessarily. But as I dove into the numerous commentaries, because there's a verse in here that is one of the most like popular in all of our Christian faith, like as I dove into it, it's like, man, this is one of those speeches that he's giving to his people. And so my hope is that we can read it together a little bit through that lens 
and then apply and see what God has for us through this word today. Amen? So we're going to read starting at the second half of verse 18 in chapter 1. And if you have your journals that we gave you last week, that's the translation, so feel free to read along. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with the full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're going to speak to us through it today. God, I thank you that this is as relevant to every hearer in this room today as it was to the people of Philippi who this letter was originally written to, that your word is alive, it speaks to us, and it informs us as to your heart, your character, and our call in this world. So we thank you. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak through me, and my words would fall upon open ears and open hearts. pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there's some levity in that, isn't there? It's like, man, this guy is, he's... He's got some things to say, and uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting where this should lead our understanding of how to follow and serve Jesus. So we're going to get there, but first, like, some of that language can be kind of hard to understand how he's flowing between the thoughts. So I'm just going to give you, like, the quick layperson term of what he was saying, and then we're going to dive into what that means for us. So the previous half of the sentence of last week that is right before where he says this week, yes, and I will rejoice, is he's, he's unpacking that there's adversity happening and there's people that are preaching a, a gospel that is motivated by not good things in their heart, that they're kind of coming against him, that there's divisiveness in Rome as these, you know, there's the two groups of people he's talking about that are preaching the gospel. One is for good motives, it's for the furthering of the good news, and then one is to gain influence. I kind of draw this little conclusion, like the influencers that are just trying to get followers rather than caring about people's hearts, right? Like there's this going on. And he finishes that whole thought by saying, but I'll rejoice. I have joy in that. That's how he finished last time. And then we start again, and if I don't point this out, you don't get what he's saying, but he says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know. So what he's saying is, I rejoice for all the adversity and the advancement of the gospel and that God's going to do what God's got to do and it's not dependent upon me or these people doing it perfectly with good motives. And in fact, I also rejoice for my hardship that I'm about to tell you about, for, for this wrestling that's happening internally in me. So he's saying, I have joy for what's been happening, and I have joy for what is about to happen. It's an ongoing, persevering joy that one sentence, one verse, if you don't split it how it's supposed to be split and actually read it, like you miss it. He's saying, I have, 
I have joy for all that stuff I just told you about. Now buckle up, because I also got joy for what I'm about to unpack to you. I have joy for this as well, a forward-looking, anticipatory joy for what is ahead of him because of the advancement of the gospel. He's also communicating through this that he has hope in a hopeless position. He's still possessing joy moving forward, even though he's in chains. And in fact, we would say that this is a joy that surpasses understanding, because if we were just to list out his circumstances, his plight, his daily life, we'd be like, that's not very joy-filled. And what I think we actually mean to say is, I wouldn't be very happy in that, but he's still finding joy in the midst of it. And then he starts to cast this vision for the fact that he believes he's going to have ultimate or circumstantial deliverance, or both. Like, he's talking about my deliverance. And we think, oh, it means he's getting out of prison. He's prophesying that he's getting out of prison. Or maybe God's just told him. We don't know exactly what he's saying because the original word can mean circumstantial deliverance or deliverance to Jesus in death. And this is one that, like, scholars have debated over and had to hold in tension for years is what he's saying is, I know that I'm going to be delivered. Does it mean out of prison or to heaven? I don't know, but I'm good either way. I'm good either way. And he says, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, I'll be delivered one way or another. Through your prayers, he's talking to his people of this church. He's pastoring via letter from a little ways away. And he's saying, through your prayers and through the Holy Spirit, the power and the presence of the Spirit of Jesus, as he puts it, everything's going to be okay. Everything will be okay. It's not up to my understanding. He's saying, whether it's in life or death, everything's going to be okay. How often can we have peace in that realization? Like, tomorrow's not guaranteed, but it's going to be okay because God's in control. The victory's won. My life is his. If I'm here, it means I got more to accomplish in his name, that there's more work to be done. But if I'm not, I get to be with him. My friends and family are going to be hurting, but I'm going to be okay. Like that, that realization, that tension, it's often uncomfortable for the contemporary church because we like to think about just how fruitful our life can be in Jesus. And we can have this full life in Jesus, but when it comes to suffering and death, that's not something we really like to talk about. Yet anytime we talk about meaningful things, there has to be an accommodation for the fact that at some point this is going to end. And how should our hearts resolve with that fact, whether it's for us or those around us. He says, if I'm put to death, good for me. Like, I get to be with Jesus. That's what I'm living for. I'll be with the one who my heart desires. But if I remain, it's for a purpose. And that purpose is to be fully capitalized on, not wasted. That's what he's saying. If I'm still here, great. I know why. Because I got a purpose. I got a mission. But if I'm not, if the Romans end up putting me to death, so be it. I'm with the Lord. Then he goes forward, and you kind of see this, <clears throat> this rhetoric that he's like, but I have a hunch that I'll remain, is kind of how I, how I receive it. He's like, but I have a hunch that I'll remain, as there is more work to do in you, for you, and in your church, is, is basically what he's saying. He's saying it's beneficial for me to be in service to the Lord here, because there's some things he wants to do. And so I'm good either way, but I have a hunch that he's going to keep me around. He's going to deliver me from this because he's got some work to do. And I'm honored to be a part of it. So I'll probably be around a little bit longer, he says. And then when I return to you, and this can be a little confusing in that last verse, 
He's saying, God will get the glory for what he does in me and maybe releasing me from captivity and using my words and my leadership. That glory will be given to God when I return to you, not to me. He's making sure, like, hey, y'all remember, if I do come back to you, let's not have this yay Paul party. Like, let's praise God for what he's doing. This isn't about me, he's saying. This is for glory to be given to God. What a humble approach to wrap up that thought with. Like, we read that, at least I'll speak for myself. I read Paul's thoughts here, what he's writing, and I'm like, what a humble, courageous leader. Man, this guy, there's a guy worth following, right? Like, we, we get into that place oftentimes with, with leaders. We're like, there's someone I can follow. And before we know it, we're more of a cheerleader than the individual, than the person he's trying to lead you to. And Paul's making sure that these folks don't get it twisted, that, hey, this is all to the glory of God, not to the glory of Paul. <clears throat> now, there's a bit of a mixture of kind of tones and motivations and stuff as you navigate it. And so sometimes I find it helpful to maybe put it in, in language that in our contemporary uh, state we can understand a little more. But <clears throat> he's saying, like, this could end really bad. But let me be honest, like, that's better for me and I'm okay with it but it's better for you and others if I stay. So let it be the Lord's will. And it's like, what, I trust God, whatever it is. He says, I'm going to give my life to focused, on purpose, unashamed, fueled by prayer in the Holy Spirit mission. That's what he is encompassing here. <clears throat> Paul's purpose and what he's living for is not up in the air. Like, it's, it's not debatable. He's not trying to figure it out. He's not taking a gap year to see what the Lord might have for him. Like, he, his purpose is clear. He knows exactly what he is called to do. He has no question. And as we read this, I believe the main thing the Lord has for us today as we receive this is that he would like for us to also be crystal clear about the same thing for ourselves. Now, when I say your purpose, I don't mean your vocation. I don't mean your degree. I don't mean which house to purchase. I don't mean the circumstances that are a part of your everyday life. But what is the thing that fuels them? What is the thing that all of that comes under, is dictated by? What is your true north that dictates the direction and the decisions in your life? And I think in this, we are invited to make sure we know what that is for us. What is our purpose? And it's funny because at our ENC social this week, this was like the topic and the question that Elisa took them through in that conversation. And two days ago, God changed my message to have this focus. And so it wasn't even intentionally built upon each other. So before you guys think that Elisa and I just communicate super well, no, this is God, I believe, wanting to speak something to our community, to our people at a very specific point in time. So the question this leaves us with is what are you living for? Not like what kinds of things do you want to accomplish or acquire? What are you living for? What's the reason behind everything, right? And that seems very like, it can seem abstract, 
And it can seem like a very unattainable answer. When we're on campus and we're tabling and we're trying to reach out to students that are far from Jesus or don't know him, and, and one of the questions they've been asking is like, what is your purpose? To just random people, mind you. They come by our table, we're a bunch of goofy Christians who just want to tell them about Jesus, and we say, we'll give you a treat if you answer a question. And they're like, okay. It's like, what's your name? And they answer, and they're like, whew, there's my one question. That was easy. And like, no, 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 that was just a greeting. What's, here's the question. What is your purpose in life? What's your purpose? You should see the looks on people's faces. Like, what? Excuse me? I'm just trying to get a degree and not make my parents mad so they'll keep paying my rent. Okay? Like, don't talk to me about purpose. Like, it can be so, and that's overgeneralized. Some people have great answers. But I think that those who are engaged in this tabling with me would, would like, agree. It is just, most people are stunned that you would even ask someone at their season of life, at their age, a question that is so deep and meaningful, which leads me to believe that off of the campus, there might be some similar answers to the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Because the answer to that question will determine the direction of your life. What are you living for determines the direction that, like, of, of the rest of your life and all the decisions you make, where you live, what jobs you say yes to, like, what schools your kids are in, all of these things align with what are you living for? What's your purpose? And if your purpose is wrong or misguided, your direction will be wrong and misguided. If your purpose is vague or fuzzy, your direction will be fuzzy and you'll feel like you're always just trying to navigate a really foggy day and nobody likes to drive in the fog. So like, why set yourself up for that? If you don't know your purpose, you'll just be swept along by the currents of our age doing what seems to bring you happiness that will be the ultimate pursuit. So it's crucial that we be clear and correct in answering the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? And the correct answer to that question must include some thought about the fact of death and what lies beyond also. It also has to include consideration of the uncertainty of life so that whenever death may come, death doesn't thwart your purpose. You guys get that about what Paul's saying here? It's like, in life or death, my purpose is still, like, either way, it's still fulfilled. So if your purpose is something that is apart from e something that's eternal, that's found in Jesus, then death can actually interrupt your purpose rather than be the culmination of it. That you can, it's like, to die is gain. I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm living my life for him, and if... They put me to death because of, you know, the trial that I'm about to be in. I'll be okay because that's what I've been living for. The Apostle Paul here was clear and focused on his purpose. And I believe that the purpose for which he lived is the only purpose that takes eternity into account. I don't believe there's other purposes that take eternity into account. So that for him, whether living a long life or whether it's cut short, his purpose can be fulfilled. And in short, his purpose, as he says it here, is for to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And then to die would be gain. That's his purpose statement in the midst of this letter. So I believe that every Christian should aim at being able to truthfully say, for me, to live is Christ. Can you truly say that? Can, can I truly say that? Even as I'm putting this message together, I'm like, whew, I got some areas to work on. 
Can you say that? And we need to be honest when examining our lives before the Lord because as, as, a, as a teenager, when my parents would ask me something that was convicting, I'd just try to present something that kept them happy, like try to act in a way that they would get off my case and think I was doing what they wanted me to, not realizing they probably know anyway, right? As you become a parent of teenagers, and mine's not in the room, so I can't look at her and be like, you listening, Addy? As you become a parent of teenagers, you realize you often know a lot more what's going on than you thought your parents did, um, and it's kind of scary if you reflect back. But what is the point in trying to hide, like, your heart motivation and whether or not you're clear and focused on your purpose from Jesus? Like, you ever think about that? Do you ever, like, try to, like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let him see that part. And it's like, oh, you need to read your Bible. <laughs> like, good luck at that. And so to bring our purpose in focus, we need to take an honest evaluation of where we're at. And then we need to answer two questions for ourselves. We didn't answer, what does it mean to live Christ or live is Christ or live as Christ? And how do we do that? So what does that even mean? Because the language is different than we would speak it, right? And then how do we do that? So first, what does it mean to live Christ? To live Christ. The first answer in that is to live Christ means to live in union with Christ so that he becomes my all in all. To live in union with him so that he becomes my all in all. This concept of being in Christ was vital to Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It was vital. He addresses this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi. And the instant a a person truly believes in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, they are joined organically into a living, real union with Christ at the head as a member of his body, the church. That, first and foremost, that's, that's at the foundation. When you say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are added into his family, the church, that which he is the head of his body. And to be in Christ means that all that is true of Christ is true for the believer. Paul writes in Romans 6, For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The believer is in union with Christ and therefore has access to our Heavenly Father as well. Now, while that is our true standing Before God, we must grow in our experience of the reality of this standing so that in our daily lives we live in fellowship with Christ, communing with Him and depending on Him for everything. I don't know about you guys, but initially when I first gave my life to Jesus, I had no clue how that would actually play out or the implications of that on my daily life, on my eternity even. Like a lot of that was hard for me to wrap my mind around. And as we grow and we mature in Christ, this stuff starts to unfold, make more sense. We get how it affects our daily lives. It means growing to know Christ intimately, growing in relationship with him. It means growing to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's Mark chapter 12. It means submitting all of my thoughts, emotions, words, and deeds to the lordship of Jesus so that I seek to please him in all respects. 
that I'm, I'm, I'm devoting, I'm giving all of those things to him. It means growing to experience Christ as my all in all, my everything, the motivation, the fuel for wherever he would take me. Every aspect of life must be around the Lord Christ Jesus. Now, I realize that can be like an overwhelming thought, especially depending on where you are in your journey. And that's why we made sure that we did a really good job at unpacking grace in week one, that there is grace for this, that God doesn't expect you to flip some light switch and have everything figured out and do it perfect, that he's with you in the journey. He brings you into community to, to walk you through this journey. Because the glorious person of Jesus and nothing less, like a devotion to him and nothing less, is the purpose of the Christian life. Like to give everything to him, his purposes, his plans, like to submit our thoughts, like our ideas, our decisions, as well as we can to him, to let him guide and direct us. Now, of course, our experience of living Christ or living Christ-like is a process that's never fully realized in this life. It's not something that you arrive to, right? Like none of us ever fully get there. There might be different religions that say that, but that's not us. None of us ever fully get there. Paul says in Philippians 3, a little later, that not only I have already or not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may hold on that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Even Paul's like, I haven't obtained this, but I'm in pursuit of Jesus with everything that I am and everything that I have. Even the most godly Christians that have been walking, following the Lord for a really long time have times when Christ seems distant and when their prayer life or their word life seems sluggish. So I want to encourage you, just because God may seem distant in a season or your time with him may seem sluggish, that is a call to persevere, not quit, and think you're broken or disqualified. The the reality is there will be those seasons. I have seasons with my kids when it feels a little more disconnected than with others. I have seasons in connection with my wife that things don't seem as connected or they might seem a little sluggish. Those things cause me to desire to persevere and work through them and press in, not give up and say, I just got this wrong. That is not what this, these experiences, these things say about our, our pursuit of Jesus, about our intimacy with him. In this life, you will never reach a point where you will not be tempted by sin, where you don't have to battle the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride that wants to come out in our lives. You will never arrive at a place where that stuff's all gone. I wish it did. But until Jesus comes back, until we meet him, like that, that's going to be a part of our life. But each of us who are truly children of God will have as our focus to life an experiential way that the fact of our union with Christ is lived out so that he becomes our all in all, that in all our experiences and all of our thoughts, we just try to take those thoughts captive and we pursue him. When there's a lie about how awesome we are, we take that, bo- that boastful, like prideful thought captive and we say, no, because of Jesus is why this is happening, why this is good. We combat the lies and the pride and the sin And we give glory to God. We give him our all in all. 
The second thing that to live Christ means is to exalt him in everything we do. To exalt him in everything we do. Paul said, but that with full courage now is always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is just another way of saying the great goal of the Christian life is to glorify God by everything we are and everything we do. And to glorify God in common language means to make God look good as he truly is. To represent or reflect him like the good God that he is. Is our life exalting God in everything? Are your conversations, your actions, the way you love, you treat people, the effort you give to your work, the way you steward your finances, the way you parent your kids, how you interact with your spouse, how you engage in your classes, how you engage with peers. Like, I know it gets overwhelming because we could just keep going with the list, but in all of those things, are we exalting Christ? Are we bringing honor and glory to him in all the things that we do? When we look at Paul's circumstances, I, I shared this in one of the first weeks, but if it were me, I'd be really focused on getting out of prison. That would be a pretty, like, pretty big focus of my life if I were him at that point in time. But his circumstances, it's remarkable that his main focus in the midst of him was not getting released from prison, but rather on exalting Christ. And that Christ would be exalted far beyond his reach in his letters. But he's like, hey, if the gospel spreads because of this, praise God. To him be the glory. That was his heart. And I believe that is what our heart should be also. Man, this work environment is really hard. My boss, whew, this has been rough, right? I'm not saying me. I'm saying this could be one of you. Or maybe Casey. It's my boss, I'm telling you. It's rough. It's rough. But in the midst of that, rather than praying for my deliverance from my circumstances, how can I exalt and glorify Jesus in the midst of them? When you're going through pain, when you're going through persecution, when people are against you, when there's divisiveness and disunity seemingly flourishing around you, a presence of unity, a presence of peace, a presence of Christ-likeness in the midst of that shines like a lighthouse on a dark and foggy coast that can actually draw people to safety. It can draw people to Jesus. It can draw them to the gospel. So when the world tries to have us shrink back, Right? Like, this is so hard. Everybody hates me. My boss doesn't even like me. Let me just keep my head down, do what I'm supposed to do, and get home from my day. What, what Paul would tell us to do is, no, in the midst of that, how do you exalt Jesus? How do you share the only reason you can persevere in the midst of that? How, can, how do you share that this is actually causing me to pray for that person? Because when I pray for an enemy, God changes my heart. He works on me. And he might actually humble me by answering like a really unselfish prayer for somebody that I don't currently care for. You ever prayed for an enemy? Hopefully some of you have practiced that. Pray for your enemies. I know enemy sounds very ominous. Pray for those that you feel are against you or that you feel they may have offended you or they don't like you or maybe you offended them and that's what created the whole enemy thing. Pray for them. God changes your heart when you pray for those people. And there is nothing like a little humble pie. If I'm going to pray for this person and God's going to bless them and you're still praying for your things too, once you experience that, 
you experience a whole new level of maturation in your intimacy with Jesus and your pursuit of him and experiencing his grace in a whole another way. God will humble our hearts as we exalt him in that. Because that's what you're doing. You're choosing not my will, but yours. Not my comfort and my circumstances, but your will. Would you be exalted? Would you be made known in the midst of this really hard thing that you may be going through? So to live Christ means you exalt him in everything that you do. And it also means that you die to selfish desires in order to live to serve others for Jesus' sake. You die to selfish desires in order to serve others for the sake of Jesus. Paul even admits here, like, his desire was just kind of to check out, right? He's like, I'm fine dying because I'm be with Jesus and I'm good. He, he tells us that. I would rather depart and be with Christ. But he also realized that the Philippians and others needed his ministry, that others needed his ministry. So he was willing to deny his desires for the sake of serving others for Christ's sake. Now, of course, the final decision as to whether Paul lived or died rested with the Lord. That was up to him. But Paul was willing to live on in fruitful service, even if it meant he remained in chains, if that's what the Lord wanted him to do. Now, he's communicating this stuff to the people from a place of an impending trial. He's about to go on trial before government and rulers and leaders of Rome. And he's in there for spreading the gospel, right? And so do you think if Paul was like, I just want to check out, I just want to be done, I just want to go meet Jesus, do you think he maybe could have gave testimony in court, manipulated the situation to get the result that he wanted? Like, he probably could have been inflammatory and offensive to the fact where they're just like, all right, just be done with this dude. We don't even want him in our prisons anymore, right? Like, there's, there's situations where, yes, God ultimately has this, and that's what he put his trust in. Instead of, here's what I really want, and I'm going to manipulate the circumstances so I can try to dictate the outcome. Like, he could have tried to manipulate the trial situation. He could have tried to be working behind the scenes, making friends with the guard, trying to make some arrangement. But he's just like, no, I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to continue to lead churches via letter or whatever else, and I'm going to trust that God's got this. And if he's going to keep me here, so be it. If he's going to bring me to him, so be it. So be it. If you're, not, like, if you're not denying yourself in order to serve Christ, then you're not living Christ. You're not living in a life that embodies who Christ is. You're living for yourself. And many people today have the notion that Christ is there to serve them rather than we are here to serve Christ. Many people today treat Jesus as like a, a genie in the bottle or a cabana boy that, hey, go get me this. Like, that's what your prayers actually communicate. I need this, I need this, I need this. Chop, chop, right? Instead of like, how can I die to myself and serve for the glory of Jesus? Many people think that the church exists to meet their needs. And if the church doesn't meet their needs, then they drop church or try to find another one that does meet their needs. We need to get back as followers of Jesus to the biblical truth that we have been saved to serve Jesus, not to serve ourselves. And if everyone who attends church had this mindset, could you imagine the impact? Could you imagine the impact? Now, I've had the pleasure of like going and serving at a lot of different churches over my time, and I will tell you this. I have never stepped foot in a church that has more people focused on this than when I'm home and when I'm with you all. 
So I don't say this from a place today of like, get your act together, but praise God that that is who we are. But we've never arrived, family. And so we can always do better. But gosh, I am honored and proud of the fact that I can sit here and preach this and be like, yeah, our, our people do pretty darn good at that. Not, nothing about me, but Christ in you. And so don't lose that. And when more are added to our number, hold on to that as a part of <clears throat> a part of our culture that isn't debatable. It's, 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 it's not debatable. We exist to serve Jesus. We are saved to serve him. Thus, to live Christ means to live in union with him so that he is our all in all, so that we can exalt him in all that we do, and that we die to ourselves to serve him. So that's what it means to live Christ. Now, briefly, how on earth do we do that? How do we do that? <clears throat> Paul was clearly determined here to live Christ as his sole aim. So we live Christ by making that our constant aim. I remember when I was at Western Oregon University, and it was my first term there, and I was like, I don't know this place. I'm going to find some fun classes to take. So I took archery. And they, they put us out. It was, oh, whew, pass or fail, baby. Um, they give us this recurve bow, and they're like, go shoot it at the target. And I remember the first day, they're just like, you're shooting, and you have no aiming device. You're just shooting a recurve bow with no means of aiming it. And it was like, this is kind of pointless. I, I can't aim at what I'm doing. And then as the days moved on, at first they just didn't want you to focus on being too competitive, they told me. Um, they just wanted you to learn how to appropriately use the bow. And I was like, no, I want to win. Like, give me something to aim with. <clears throat> but there became much more purpose when that weapon was in my hand, when I was able to aim, when they gave me some sort of way to calibrate it, to aim it, to know what I was aiming for, what I was shooting for. And it occurred to me that there are often times in our lives where I feel like I have nothing to aim at and I feel like I'm just wasting that effort or that time when you're just kind of existing and just like putting energy and effort out into the world, but you don't know what you're aiming for. And what Paul is saying is his sole aim is to live as Christ. It's his sole motivation that we're not just out there flinging arrows being like, oh, this is fun, yay, let's see where it lands. Like, no, we have a constant aim, and that is to live as Christ, to exalt him, to make him our all in all, and to serve him. As a follower of Christ, this is how we live. That is always the bullseye on the target that we are aiming for. And you may miss Time to time, one side or the other, up or down, that's okay. But when you're aiming at something, even when you miss, you're still coming up close. You're still in proximity. God can still use those things. I may preach a message that you're like, man, that was rough. It'll happen. But every time I'm like the most frustrated about my sermon, somebody comes up to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, Pastor. And it's not the person that tells me every week that they loved it. It's somebody new, right? It's, and so that's why I know it's real. Like, gosh, that just really hit me. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't want to do the same thing next week. <laughs> but praise God that he used it, right? Like, God can use even a little bit of a miss if you're aiming for something and your aim is to honor and glorify him. He can use it even when it's imperfect. So as Christians, we need to honestly evaluate our lives in light of Paul's aim, what he's calling us to aim for, to always be focused on, driving for. 
It's easy to fall into living for good things, but not for the best. Another way it's saying, it's easy to settle. (laughs) Because going for the best or aiming for the bullseye, like there was always people in the class that are like, how good do I got to shoot to just like get the pass? (laughs) How do I not fail? Do you guys have those, any classes like that? Or maybe that's you, I'm sorry. We can talk after service. But like the question is just like, how do I not fail? How do I not fail? And it's like, Paul's saying, no. We, because of the excellent and perfect gift that we have received in Christ Jesus, should live a life that pursues excellence, not to earn his favor, but to represent his gift. Do you hear me? We don't pursue excellence because I got to get an A or daddy won't love me. No, you want to get an A because it glorifies God. It represents his perfect gift and the way in which he interacts with you in a perfect way, even when you can't. Now, if you don't get an A, if you're not excellent, if you're not perfect, it doesn't mean he's going to love you less, but we should, that should be our aim, that we are living the best that we can. We are giving our best effort forward so that we can glorify Jesus with the excellence that can represent the great gift he gave us on the cross. God graciously blesses us with families and friends and homes and possessions and work and recreational activities and all of these things. But if we're not careful, these good things can become the things for which we're living. If we're not careful, the good things become what we're living for. And even for those of us that are in vocational ministry, we can begin living for our ministries. Now, most people won't tell you, oh man, you're just really serving a lot in the church and you're doing a lot of like church work, like good job, but that can become an idol just like any other job or any other thing that you're pursuing if it's not to exalt and serve Jesus and everything that you do. So we need to continue to ask ourselves, what if this thing, this person or activity that we're maybe engaging in were taken from me? Now, clearly it would be difficult, like Job, you know, if I lost my my children or my health or my possessions. But if I'm truly living for Christ, I should be able to come through any tragedy because my ultimate purpose hasn't been taken away from me. That is the perspective Paul is trying to get us to grab onto here. And it's not fun. It's not warm and fuzzy, but it will give you peace. Did you know that to have peace in something, it doesn't mean it has to be comfortable? Like, there is peace in the fact that if I'm living on purpose for Jesus, whether I live or I die, my purpose can and will be fulfilled. That's, that brings peace. That takes away a lot of angst to some decisions in your life. But that doesn't mean that that's always fun things to think through. But Paul begs this question here. He begs this question. So I have to constantly evaluate my life by asking, is Christ at the center? Is he my all in all? You have to define and determine what you're aiming at if you want to live as Christ. And then finally, we live Christ through prayer and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a man of prayer but he also freely and frequently solicited the prayers of others for him. He was not too proud to say, I'm a praying man. I hear from God. I don't need to ask anyone for help. We all know those people. A lot of us have been that person, right? Like, let me pray for you. Well, how can I, okay, how can I pray for you? No, I'm good. I'm good. I got this. My prayer life's on lock. And it's like, no, Paul was a man of prayer, but he freely solicited it from others for himself. 
we tend to think of him as being naturally bold, but he often asked for prayer that he would be bold in his witness. He didn't say, like, I got that boldness part down. That's just my personality. We're good. No, he prayed. Would you make me bold in my witness? Would you give me courage? Would you pray that I would remain unashamed? Because he knew that he was weak. He knew that he had faults and that he had weaknesses. To live Christ, we need much prayer. It cannot be an afterthought, and it cannot be the action of rubbing on the genie's bottle. It can't be that. It has to be active. It has to be present every day in your life for yourself and for others. And you've got to invite people into that. Prayer is not a solo journey. It has turned into that, unfortunately, in a lot of the church world and Christianity. But prayer is not just a you and Jesus thing. It is also a communal thing. And Paul also says he needed the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is impossible to live in the power of the flesh. It's impossible to live in the power of yourself, in the power of your flesh. We must walk by the Spirit every day depending on Him for strength. Now, why does Paul say here, and hopefully you asked yourself this question, why does he say not the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Did you guys catch that when I read it? He says, I need the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I I can't read his mind. I don't have a letter personally from him, but here's what he may mean when he says that. The Spirit who was given to us by Christ. The Spirit that they received by Christ. Christ, Or he may be describing the Spirit in this way because Jesus, in facing his trial and execution, bore faithful witness by relying on the Spirit. That there is a, like, kind of a camaraderie there. That they're asking for that same Spirit that helped him to remain faithful in the midst of persecution by relying on the Spirit. Paul was facing possible execution, and he wanted to be a faithful witness, and he knew he needed prayer and power in order to do that, and not the power of his own flesh, but the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit. This is the same Spirit that's available to us so we can live Christ, so we can live in a Christ-like way, so that our lives can represent and be focused on Christ in every situation, no matter how difficult. Living Christ must be our aim. It has to be our aim. It has to be the focus. Worship team, you can come back up. Final thought here is if we live Christ, then to die will be gain. The to die be gain part comes after the living Christ part. The living a life focused on Jesus and him being our aim and exalting him and him being our all in all actually opens up the latter part of that phrase. For Paul to go on living or to die was not a choice between the lesser of two evils. Paul didn't view life as just a trial to be endured with death being a difficult thing as well, but at least a release. Like, that's not how he viewed it. Rather, he viewed life as a progressive joy with Jesus and death as an even greater joy because he would see Christ face to face and be with him for eternity. So a Christian has the best of both worlds. We have purpose now. Every day we have a reason for our lives. But when that time comes to an end, we are face to face with the very one that we focused on 
for all of our lives on earth. And even if we suffer now, we have Christ to strengthen, sustain, comfort, and encourage us. And if Christ is real to our soul, what more could we want than to eventually be with him? And to eventually be with him. The point here is, if we handle the first part of having our hearts right with Jesus, if we give everything for him, if he's the aim, if we live as Christ, if we live to represent him, if we live a life focused on him, then death isn't the end of our purpose. It's a fulfillment of it. We live bringing Jesus everywhere into this world. And when that ends, we're with him one way or the other. To live is Christ. To die becomes a gain. But the second part doesn't come without first. So this brings us back to the original question. What are you living for? What's your purpose? What are you living for? I hope that you're not just living to get to heaven, to get out of your circumstances, to just go somewhere else because this is really hard. I pray that after considering what Paul is saying here, that you would live Christ. The focus of your life wouldn't be about how hard things are right now, but how much Jesus is going to show up and work through you in the midst of the hard things. It's about perspective. So as we close, I want you to ask yourself this question. It's got a, it's got a blank in it. For me to live is... And right now I'm asking you the, an honest question, not out loud, but where are you at now? Is it for me to live is financial gain? For me to live is success at job? For me to live is happiness? For me to live is pleasure? For me to live is people liking me? For me to live is having a good time? Like what fills in that blank? For me to live is family? Or for me to live is self? And if you answer with anything in that blank but Jesus, then when your life ends, it will be a terrible loss, not a gain. Put Jesus in that gap. Let him be your focus, your reason, your aim. If we look at Paul, we emulate his attitude, his thoughts. And you can honestly say as you evaluate your life, for me to live is Christ. Then you can also say with confidence of God's word behind you that to die is gain. So that leaves us with a necessary response this morning. I want you to seriously consider, have you committed your life to live as Christ? Not just saying, yeah, I need Jesus to save me bank accounts in the negative and my grades are bad and I don't like my job. Jesus, will you save me from my circumstances? Will you commit your life to live with Jesus' Savior, Lord, and the focus and aim of everything you do? So you may have given your life to Jesus before. You're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Great. Okay. Now can we put the word Christ in that blank that what you're living for is him? Can you make that decision today? Can we take that step forward to put him at the center, at the focus, 
at the aim of our lives and watch what he does. This isn't one of those guilt you into something messages. This is presenting an opportunity that there is so much more to life than to be focused on the things of this world. When we pivot and we put our focus on Jesus, the opportunities, the fullness of life, the way in which we grow in intimacy with him as we exalt him, it changes everything. And I would hate to preach a message that's just like, hey, live your best life and be happy. When Paul is clearly telling us you should live with Christ at the center of everything and watch what happens from that because you can't lose. Because you can't lose. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you that you don't just call us to manage our morals, to try to earn your love, to try to pursue happiness, that there is so much more to life than that. God, you call us to live as you, to live in a way that represents life and the purpose and the mission of Christ. And as we do that, we get to point people to you wherever we go. So God, I pray for each person in here today that they would have an honest evaluation of where they're at and where you're leading them. I pray against any fear or shame that would keep people stuck in the steps they're currently in. And God, I pray for courage and a heart that would be unashamed and unoffended, that would be able to move forward in your plans and your purposes and placing you at the center. God, I pray for flourishing following of you to come out of this room today. I pray for amazing, profound conversations and prayer moments to come out of this room today. And ultimately, God, I pray that each one of us would leave one step closer to you, closer to living the life you've called us to live and glorifying your name in the way that we do it. So we thank you. God, we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.